Now, prior to the general election, the Pacific Breakfast spoke with various community leaders and authorities in various different fields pertaining to our people in Aotearoa overall, and was mainly regarding the outcome and the predictions of the general election that we've just had. Now, we also covered uh, dialogues around the two referendums. If you recall, it's the End of Life Choice Act and the Cannabis Legalization and Control Referendum. Yesterday, we spoke to those who voted against uh, both referendums, and today, um, as part of our team in terms of analyzing what happened for those who voted for. We are joined by former uh, Prime Minister of Aotearoa, Helen Clark, to talk more about um, how she, um, the, the overlook of it all. So we say good morning, Talo Falava, and welcome back into the show, Helen. Thanks very much. Malo, Talo Good, good. Look, um, tell us, I mean, looking at the margins of, of the two referendums, um, most people actually thought the margins that uh, turned out as it did for the uh, cannabis legalization was the one they expected, a very tight race for the end-of-life choice bill. And yet it turned out uh, totally opposite to what some people were hoping. Tell us your feedback when you saw the referendum outcomes. So it seemed to me that the end-of-life choice referendum was always going to go through. Why do I say that? Firstly, it's been debated uh, in Parliament going back 25 years. I myself first voted for a bill put up by Michael Laws in 1995, and he wanted it to go to to a referendum because it it is a a complex ethical issue, Uh, and, and people have strong views about it. It is a classic conscience vote, if you like. Uh, but that that uh, bill went down by a huge margin. I think there were, there were under 30 of us who voted for it. And then it came back again in 2003 when I was Prime Minister uh, from the Deputy Leader of New Zealand First, Peter Brown. And that failed uh, to go to a referendum then by only 60 votes to 58 or something like that. It was very, very close. And Peter Brown obviously was very, very disappointed. So when it came back again, it seemed to me that uh, this time there had been a lot of discussion. And I found with it, by and large, people had made up up their minds. And a lot of older people uh, who, in, in their life's experience, had seen people in very difficult positions at the end of their life, they thought, well, I don't want that for me. So a lot of things you know, came together, I think, to, to make that uh, something that was probably going to pass by quite a significant majority, which it did. Now, then you come to the cannabis one. It had never been debated in Parliament, even this time, because the bill never got to Parliament. The difference with the end-of-life choice was that there was actually a bill that had gone through Parliament waiting to be triggered by the referendum. In this case, the bill hadn't gone through Parliament. And, uh, of course, uh, then you have you know, everyone sticking their oar in and a very wide range of reasons for, for voting no. Some just think, oh, I don't like it. Uh, others think, um, well, you know, I'm, I'm dealing it out in the street corner now, so I'm going to lose my business. I mean, it was, it was quite strange. But it came very, very close, and I think it will come even closer when these special and overseas votes are counted. And what I'm now hearing is people, even including the Salvation Army, which campaigned against it, uh, saying, oh, well, we support decriminalisation. Well, I think they might be taken at their word because if you have you know, somewhere between 46 48% or so of people saying, we want 
change. And then a lot of the people are saying no, saying, oh, we would have voted for something a bit different. There's definitely an appetite for change. People know it's not right as it is. So I think there'll be some ongoing discussion about this in this coming parliament. And saying that, uh, Helen, do you feel that there was enough information? Was there enough time given? Because this is what we're hearing. Now, if you voted no for the end-of-life choice bill and it now come to pass, what they're saying is there wasn't enough information for our people. Uh, well, speaking of the Pacific people and also some of uh, New Zealanders who voted no, who didn't, they're saying there's not enough information that went out. They're even saying, uh, going as far as saying that some were only, uh, their understanding of the end of life choice was uh, uh, turning off the life support machine for a family member. That's how basic their understanding of it all. And then when it came to the cannabis referendum, they're also saying that that misinformation that's been out in a community has caused. And so what we're hearing is that people were voting based on, um, and it depends on who you ask, everyone's claiming not enough information or the media skewing. And so we're pointing at all directions. But from your perspective, was there enough timeline given for a proper education breakdown into each society of New Zealand so that they could have some sense of ownership when come the time to make a decision like the referendum? I think the, the problem is now, and we see it on everything from these referenda to how you deal with COVID-19 to all sorts of issues, we have what is called an infodemic, right? <laughs> There's just so much information around. And a lot of people, of course, have very busy lives. They're trying to put food on the table, the kids to look after, family responsibilities, you know, all, all sorts of challenges. They don't have time to wade through it all. And so what, what I would say to listeners is you know, work out who you respect out there, who, whose job it is to actually you know, try and tell the truth about issues, and, and look at what they're saying. I mean, for me, when I look at international affairs, which I follow very closely, I think, well, if I follow the BBC, I'm likely to get a pretty honest take on it, right? So... That would be my recommendation. There, there was a lot of misinformation and disinformation and outright lies about both these referendums. And I, I don't blame people for saying, well, look, I just, I just couldn't figure it out because it was coming at them from all directions. Looking at the cannabis referendum now, the legalization now that's been voted, no, are we going to let democracy take its course? Are we going to let the sleeping dogs lie? Or is there now another uh, potential um, uh, sort of this being brought back into uh, the favori of conversations, not only politically, but nationally for the country to have another go at it? And if so, what sort of timelines are we looking at when it comes to these sort of decision making? So you know, my prediction is that when the overseas and special votes are counted, that the yes vote will rise from the current 46 to 47, 48, who knows. But basically you're looking at a country that was divided down the middle between legalisation and not legalisation. And as I said, you're now seeing a lot of the opponents, and I see a lot of them on my Facebook page as well, uh, saying, oh, well, I would have voted for you know something else. Uh, so I think there's going to have to be change, and I think uh, people are going to have to sit down in Parliament and work out what to do next. I'll tell you what the first thing I would do, and I wrote about this in the, in the Herald on Saturday. I would go back to the law change which Parliament tried 
uh, last year. And last year, they said if a person is found using or possessing drugs of any kind, the police are not to arrest and prosecute. They are to direct people uh, to a service, uh, which, of course, is much more sensible. However, New Zealand first insisted on putting a, a wording in that law that said unless the police think it's in the public interest to prosecute. Well, guess what? <laughs> the police just kept arresting and prosecuting. So the first thing you would do if you want to, quote, decriminalise like that, is you take away the police discretion. So I'm sorry, you don't ever arrest or prosecute on these things. That's not your job. And then let's take it from there. Uh, I think the whole Misuse of Drugs Act needs an overhaul. When I was Prime Minister, uh, we... It, we commissioned a review of the Misuse of Drugs Act uh, from the New Zealand Law Commission, headed by Sir Geoffrey Palmer at the time. They reported in 2011, when I was no longer PM, and they said, overhaul the whole thing, start again. And so I think that's another possible way to look at it. But believe me, it's not going to stay where it is, because I think there's a general appreciation that the law is wrong. It's just people are uh, arguing about what it should be. I mean, let's look at what you just said in terms of the um, the prosecuting power of the police force. Now, for our Pacific community, you're looking at, okay, so this means that, imagine, you know, those are within our gangs and the criminal activities. This They, they can totally use this against, um, towards their benefit if, if they get stopped by the police and that power of prosecution has been removed, right? I mean, isn't that a fear that would come with if you do take away that power from the police to actually do something in, in at the time of arrest or questioning? Yeah, so, so there's two things here. Uh, what, what the law parliament passed intended was to say the person who is using or has, it, has the small amount for use in their possession, they shouldn't be arrested and prosecuted. But the problem, and I, I agree with that, right? If, if you're dealing with a meth user, what is the point of arresting and prosecuting someone who has an addiction? They have a problem. They need to go to a service. And what Parliament intended, the Prime Minister said, was they need to go to a health service. Police, don't, put, don't try and put them in jail. They need help. Now, then there's the issue of supply, and this is, this is the much more, more difficult one. And where the, the cannabis bill said, look, let us legalise it, let us say what can be sold, let us licence who can do it, let's try and clean this up. The other drugs are more complex. Uh, and so under what Parliament intended in 2019, uh, the people who are selling it, the gangs on the corners, they would still be liable for arrest or prosecution. But the key thing with the decriminalisation is to try to stop young people uh, who are experimenting with cannabis or anything else being caught up in the criminal justice system and ending up as the gang recruits. Because we know how it goes, Alpha, right? Kid drops out of school, they start using drugs, they build up some kind of dependence on meth or whatever, they go down a slippery slope, the next thing they're selling the stuff and, and then they're recruited to a gang and so on. It's a slippery slope. You're trying to stop the slippery slope. So, you know, when, when people have come across uh, using drugs, you don't arrest them. You'd say, look, you need some help, Sonny, and we're going to uh, send you in that direction. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, look, it, it's a complicated issue, but what we know is what we have at the moment doesn't work.
Okay. So yesterday we saw the new cabinet. We saw some changes. Uh, we also saw some uh, new faces in, in certain portfolios. Now, always wanted to ask you, you know, what it was like for you when you were first given your portfolio back in the 80s, you know, the kind of emotions and pressure and responsibilities. What would be your uh, gift of experience of first timer for those of our newly appointed uh, ministers who have never been in cabinet first and foremost and now given a portfolio? Uh, well, the first thing I would say is don't give any any interviews about your portfolio for at least a month <laughs> because you need to read the briefing papers, right? Um, and and some of them will be taking on areas they never worked on before. But you know, I mean, look, you have two very senior Pacific ministers. You have Carmel Cipollone, who's sitting there at number six, still Minister for Social Development, uh, Minister for Arts, Culture and Heritage. That's fantastic. Minister for ACC, Minister for Disability Issues. So Carmel's experience, she's had three years there now. Then you have Poto Williams from Christchurch East uh, electorate. And uh, Poto is coming into the cabinet. She's been outside the cabinet before. She's taking on Minister for Police. And I think, you know, Poto could do a power of good in this, you know, supporting the modernisation of our of our, our police force uh, because not everything's gone, you know, so well in, in, in recent years. And she's also got the, the building and construction portfolio and, and so on. And then you have uh, uh, Opito Williamsio outside the uh, the Cabinet uh, Minister for Pacific Peoples and, and for the courts and a, a range of associates. So, you know, the, I mean, and all of them have got some experience, but uh, the ones who have just come into the Cabinet, like Kitty Allen, who won the East Cape seat, which runs from uh, Whakatane uh, around to the, the, the Gisborne area. Uh, she's, she's starting off as Minister of Conservation. That's where I started, 1987. Minister of Conservation and Housing, and I'd say to Kitty, just just sit down now, carefully read those briefing papers, start reaching out to people in the sector, uh, and you know, this, this, these are serious jobs. I mean, you're in the in the public eye, you're in the opposition's uh, target range, and they're going to target the the new ones and and hope they can get them to make some mistakes. That's that's all, all politics, of course. But overwhelmingly, I think these, these new ministers, they'll be feeling incredibly excited because what an opportunity. You know, very few people get to serve their country as a, as a minister. So it is a huge privilege and it has to be taken very seriously. We, uh, it's been dubbed the most diverse uh, cabinet we've had so far, not just with, uh, in all sense of the word, in terms of communities. You know, you've got the Rainbow Community, the South Asian community seeing uh, their first member uh, portfolio, but then the eight seats that have been given to women within the cabinet it's 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 the first of it i mean for you starting back looking back at the time of new zealand when it was only a few females in in, in the caucus and seeing it now must uh, must be giving you a lot of pride seeing the amount of women contribution in cabinet yes and and you know look look it, it's it's up around uh, i think 40 percent in the cabinet and up to around what 46 in, in the broader ministry because the broader ministry has the ministers outside cabinet like the CEO, uh and and so on uh, look when when i started uh, <laughs> there were eight women out of 92 mps I mean, this was pathetic it was nine percent i i understand that on the provisional election results and remember we haven't had the final yet uh, the proportion of women is very close to 48%. And, and that 40% of the cabinet, of course, needs to go up. 
so, you know, in, in the course of this term, who knows? You know, sometimes ministers fall out. There, there will be opportunities to bring more women up this time and, you know, obviously following the next election because the more women who are there and have experience, uh, the more likely it is that you can get to a gender-equal parliament. And we're very close to that. We're very close to, you know, equal numbers of men and women in parliament. So, you know, we, we need now to get even closer to equal numbers in the Cabinet. I just hope a lot of them get some breathing spaces because I'm seeing these portfolios. They're not small and it's like four out of five per person. <laughs> it just yeah, seems yeah, to yeah, grow yeah. so much. But I think um, just yeah. seeing the you know the Maori caucus and also Nanaya Mahuta taking the road that she has had, um, it's beautiful. It's good for our Tangata well, Fendu and for our team. very significant, very mm. significant because Nanaya uh, is the first woman ever to be Minister of Foreign Affairs. And also, she's she's a Maori woman. She's an Indigenous woman and, and a very proud Indigenous woman. So she's going to you know, represent our country uh, so well. I've I've worked with Nanaya for you know, the last 25 years or so since she first became a candidate to replace the Honourable Koro Wetavi, who was the you know the, the Minister for Western Maori and then uh, uh, that uh, Waikato Tainui area. Uh, which the uh, Nanaya represents, so she, she'll do well. I know that. And our old friend Willie Jackson is all around. But um, look, uh, before My I let you. Number fifteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I knew his mum. I knew his mum. You know. Oh wow! Look, still going. <laughs> right, Helen. Before I let you go, let me just ask you one thing: If you were prime minister around about this time and you've had the victory that we've just had, would you have given consideration to the current? Uh, I don't know what you call it. Partnership with the Green that's now laying out. Oh, uh, I, I, I would have done the same thing, Alpha. I think it's important to build a long-term relationship. And uh, that's uh, what Jacinda's done. Mm. Mm. All right. Yeah. Uh, so that's exactly what I would have done. I mean, for the Greens, you know, I mean, last time, of course, you know, their, their numbers were much more important to maintaining uh, the government. This time, Jacinda's got an absolute majority. But, but that, that comes round, you know, like the rare white heron, not very often. Uh, so... You know, she she's right to keep uh, an arrangement with the Greens, in my opinion. A very diplomatic answer there, madam. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us this morning, former Prime Minister of Aotearoa, Helen Clark. Uh, wishing you a good day, madam. Thanks, guys.